From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Molly Marcello. It's Friday, November 10th. For two decades, the town of Castle Valley has celebrated the beauty and versatility of the hard-shelled gourd. The Castle Valley Gourds and More Festival rings in the change of seasons with community, camaraderie, and a gourd s. It was the festival's 20th year this fall, so the many gourd s's of years past joined the festivities in their full gourd regalia. KZMU News was there and has this audio postcard. Hello, welcome to the Gourd Fest. Outhouse is over there where the black stovepipe is. And just past that, on the right, in the firehouse, is some free beverages and coffee. So enjoy. Thank you so much. That's my spiel. Uh, My name is Sue Duvall, and I have lived in Castle Valley since 1997. Well, it started out, Chris Coffee started, and uh, it was just a little small thing. In fact, one year it w- it rained and it was so small that she moved it to her house. <laughs> and it's pretty well grown since then. Yes, and the, the parade's at noon, so you'll get to see the gorgeous. <laughs> My name is Nellie Mafelt, and I grew up right here in Castle Valley. My mother, Alice, was the original Gordas 20 years ago. I was the Gordas in 2019. I have a uh, duct tape bodice, which I actually made for the Trashin Show even, even more years ago. <laughs> and then I have a very large hoop skirt with gourds and roses all over it. And this hat. My mother, she made this. It's a very large gourd with roses painted on it and then dangly gourds hanging all around the brim. It's just amazing. <laughs> I feel very beautiful and regal. Wow. And her gourd hat. I know there will be gourds. I'm Allie Matz, previously Allie Fuller. So yeah, been in Moab a long time. Yes, this is the 20th year. And so they had all of the old gourdesses come with whatever pieces they had left come to the festival. And that's why we were all in it this year. (laughs) Well, the bodice is all that I had left. I stored the patchwork skirt that matched it um, for about five years, but it was a decade since I was the gourdess. I cut out tons of squares and kind of owed to my hippie self. I patchworked skirt the bottom piece and the top piece and of course you have to have you know the big gourd knockers so complete with that yeah that that was my outfit and i've got it hanging on display here at my booth castle valley gourd festival there are some very very talented people out here i think it well it's traditional for sure you know it goes way way back that gourds have had uses since day one so and decorating is just part of the deal and this says no dogs and nobody's brought one yet. No. Hello. So Welcome to the Gourd Fest. I haven't seen you in like you? Five, five years. I know. We're you, still, you we're still out, vertical. What are you doing outside? <laughs> I don't know. The 20th year of Castle Valley's Gourds and More Festival, celebrating community, camaraderie, and the hard-shelled gourd. 
As a postscript on our audio postcard today, many people we spoke with about the festival say it continues in the spirit of late founder and gourd artist Chris Coffey. Here's one of the Gourd Fest originals, Rebecca Martin. I think because of Chris, many people learned many, many wonderful skills. She was such a kind and good person. I mean, if Castle Valley were a country, she was a national treasure. You can see pictures of this year's Castle Valley Gourds and More Festival, including its multiple gourdesses, in the show notes of today's news. The Western mega drought is getting some attention from an unexpected music icon. As Alex Hager with our partners at KUNC reports, one British rock star teamed up with federal officials to promote work on Colorado River issues. With a rebel yell, he cried, conserve water. In a video from the Bureau of Reclamation, a denim-clad Billy Idol appears between government officials. He shares a message about the need for the public to help use less water from the shrinking Colorado River. Across the country, the impact of the drought crisis is undeniable. I saw it myself during my recent visit to Hoover Dam. The White Wedding singer recently became the first to play a gig at the dam back in April with the nation's largest reservoir as his backdrop. The clock is ticking for states to come up with new rules for managing the river before 2026. Federal officials hope the deadline will bring a nice day to start again. I'm Alex Hager. Buffalo were nearly driven to extinction in North America in the late 1800s due to hide hunting and a brutal campaign to starve and displace indigenous tribes. More than a century later, authorities are now struggling to control some of their populations. As Gabriel Pietrazio with our partners at KJZZ reports, they are turning to tribes to help manage the herd on the north rim of the Grand Canyon. Drivers from a pair of pickup trucks briefly parked to move construction cones blocking off a service road inside Grand Canyon National Park, near the border of the Kaibab National Forest. They were checking an enclosed pen on that Saturday morning in early September, and sure enough, two mature buffalo bulls were successfully baited. But they're very hard to transport because they hurt themselves and our other bison, and we have an agreement with Arizona that we would not ship those large bulls because those are desirable for people that have, you know, the bull tags for hunting. Greg Holm runs the National Park Service's Wildlife Biology Program. And when I trekked up there that weekend, it was this season's last chance to capture them in partnership with the Intertribal Buffalo Council, or ITBC, a collection of more than 80 tribes across 20 states that steward the species on their homelands. Bison are ultimate survivors, whether it is extremes of heat or cold. They're adapted to both. That's Dennis Horganson. He's the bison program manager for the Northern Great Plains at the World Wildlife Fund. That fact that bison thrive, you do always have to think about how you're going to manage a surplus. Authorities say that area where the Arizona herd roams can accommodate only around 200 buffalo, But in recent years, the count has surpassed 600. That herd has been spending the majority of time in Grand Canyon, oh, I'd say for at least a couple decades. Rob Nelson is the terrestrial wildlife manager at the Arizona Game and Fish Department. There's no hunting or any other kind of population check in the park. He says 247 buffalo have been killed during seasonal public hunts between 2018 and 2022, but... 
Hunting alone is not going to be the only tool to solve this population explosion problem. National Park Service Tribal Program Manager Mike Linden has an answer. Live transfer is and always has been our preferred management tool. It's one of three sustainable methods, two of which are tribal programs, that the National Park Service utilizes today. Essentially, we're right around 300 bison after our last count. Holmes says the National Park Service worked with tribes, the state, and other federal agencies to finalize a science-based management plan in 2017. Their goal is to reduce the herd size by 2025. There's some wiggle room there. If we get under 200, it's not a big deal, but that's kind of what we're shooting for. For the first time in five years, due to staffing and weather issues, none will be shipped off. But 182 buffalo have been hauled by ITBC from Arizona since 2019. They are really superb partners for us. From providing technical and cultural expertise to transporting buffalo from the remote North Rim. And do that safely is a big deal. I just don't know how else we would have a live transfer program. These animals have been relocated to at least eight tribes in South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, and Oklahoma. Today, ITBC members manage more than 20,000 buffalo throughout Indian country. With that overarching purpose being restoring buffalo for that cultural and spiritual connection to those communities. Troy Heiner is the executive director of ITBC. Everything we do is connected to that vision and that mission. Arizona's buffalo are feeding and healing indigenous communities out on the Great Plains, whose centuries-long connections with these animals likened to kin and relatives, had been severed. What we're trying to do is recreate this tribal buffalo economy while being able to use the entire animal like we once did, being able to distribute that meat to our membership, as well as the other parts of the buffalo that have ceremonial meaning to us. And Linden has been also trying to bring that opportunity to 11 traditionally associated tribes of the Grand Canyon through lethal culling, which unlike traditional hunting, is considered a management strategy, not sport. So far, five tribes have signed on to that agreement that basically says, yes, we'd like to partner with the Park Service on these operations. The pilot tribal culling operation was supposed to happen in the fall, following the conclusion of ITBC's live capture, until... Well, you do know, because you were up on the North Rim, the bison did not cooperate. Unlike live capture... Linden says lethal culling may be used sparingly going forward, if at all. But if we do, we see local tribes being a big part of that management process. I'm Gabriel Pietrazio, reporting from the North Rim of the Grand Canyon. That story is from our partners at KJZZ and their Tribal Natural Resources Desk. And now the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. Development of the Walnut Lane Affordable Housing Project has stalled again. Gwen Dilworth of the Times Independent speaks with Emily Arnson about the latest holdup. The Walnut Lane Housing Project, it was a trailer park that was bought by the city in 2018 in the hopes of transforming it into um, other housing for folks. And the negotiations with um, the developer fell apart last week. Um, This is a developer that they hired in April of this year. Did they say what fell apart? There wasn't a clear indication of what fell apart. 
Um, but Carly Castle did say um, after several months of reviewing different options and possible approaches, the city determined the proposed development um, did not accomplish the long-term goals of the city. Okay, so is this a problem with the way the affordable housing stipulations were? Or was this a problem with actual development and construction, you know, questions that couldn't be answered? Or what does it seem like? It's not entirely clear where it broke down, but it does seem like there is a challenge with having an elected body um, create an affordable housing development. And there was hope that the city would be able to hire a housing director to manage the project. And no qualified candidates um, came out of that search. Um, and so that's one challenge that the city is facing in, you know, transforming this community. Yeah. So this has been kind of a years long project that's been stalled a couple times now. And Gwen's pretty new to town. But Sophia, could you fill us in on some context of what's gone wrong in the past with this development? Yeah, absolutely. So the other kind of start and then stop with Walnut Lane happened, I believe it was 2021. I wasn't doing the reporting on it at the time. Um, but I know at that time, the city had contracted, I think, with a developer named Indie Dwell to redevelop Walnut Lane. But Indie Dwell, I think, um, was having issues essentially getting financing from other entities. Like that organization itself did not seem to be sufficiently financially solvent to be able to accomplish the project. So um, that was, you know, two, two and a half years ago at that point. And that's when Walnut Lane, you know, had its kind of first beginning and, and stop again. And we've just seen that happen all over again this year, unfortunately. Hmm. Did Carly or anyone else at the city say what the next steps are, or what's going to happen moving forward? I think it's really back to square one. And they'll just be starting again in the new year with um, new city councilors on board yeah. to spearhead that. All right. So Sophia, last week, there was a homicide suspect that drove through town on 191. Police shut down the highway. What can you tell us about that story? Yeah, that was a big incident uh, last Friday, November 3rd. There was a four-hour closure of Highway 191 uh, south of town, right around Blue Hill and Hole in the Rock, where the Moab Valley ends. Um, and that's because uh, a man suspected of, of killing another person in West Bountiful um, had been traveling down the highway. The local sheriff's office had been alerted uh, to his approach before he came through town. Uh, but Jameson Wiggins, uh, the Grand County Sheriff, told me they chose not to try to deal with the situation or apprehend the man until he'd passed through town because, you know, they knew he was a homicide suspect and, and likely armed and dangerous. Yeah. So how did they end up stopping him? Yeah, it was really interesting. They, you know, kind of followed him down through town. They had somebody tracking him and actually spiked his tires while he was driving on the highway. They got three out of four of the tires, which I would imagine is a pretty complex thing to do when you're, you know, operating these things on a well-trafficked highway. Um, the man tried to keep driving. He eventually had to come to a stop about uh, a mile or two later, and that launched a multi-hour uh, series of negotiations with him actually through his family. So they were trying to get him out of the car and trying to negotiate with him. Oh, did they have to call family members or what does that mean? Yeah, they had okay. to go through family members. Um, and ultimately, the negotiations actually weren't fruitful. They had to deploy uh, less lethal chemical munitions like a gas into the man's car. Whoa. Yeah, that essentially make you really itchy. They cause this burning mm -hmm. sensation. They just kind of force you out. How did they do that? Uh, they deployed them through the back window. Yeah, there was, and there were, I should say, um, there were half a dozen responding agencies, including a SWAT team out of Grand Junction. So certainly like, you know, many very highly trained professionals at, at working with such a complex and evolving situation. Wow. Okay. So he had three flat tires. He was stuck on the side of the highway, I assume, but he had just like locked his car and refused to get out. Yeah, more or less. Yeah. Okay. So he's been arrested. Mm -hmm. And has he been charged with anything yet? Yes. Um, 
yes, he, he was at the time at least arrested on Friday, transported back up to the Wasatch Front to be booked into the Davis County Jail. Um, and at that time, he was arrested on two felony counts and four misdemeanors. I should say his original alleged crime was uh, shooting and killing another man in a Lowe's parking lot in West Bountiful at about 5 a.m. that morning. Um, this man who he killed was allegedly with the man's estranged wife in that parking lot. Um, and, and the suspect, I should say his name is uh, Jake Thomas Jackson. He's also accused of placing a tracking device on his estranged wife's car, which led him to that parking lot in the first place. Wow. All right. Was there anything else that you wanted to say about that? Um, just, you know, that uh, Sheriff Wiggins did say that the situation went down about as well as it could have for such a dangerous situation. You know, they were able to arrest and apprehend the man um, without, from what I can tell, any injuries, let alone fatalities. And, and you know, this man... Uh, allegedly did have weapons in the car. So, you know, I think kudos to the law enforcement agencies who responded and to everybody who was patient with that long closure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How long was it closed? Four hours. Four hours. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It was rough. But apparently everybody complied very well. I think law enforcement went around to the stopped cars and kind of explained what was going on. So, <laughs> oh you know, God. it's not just like, I don't know, road work or something. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Some drama on 191. <laughs> Scary stuff. Okay shifting gears here. Gwen, do you want to talk about the apiaries and the you went to Wasatch Cash National Forest? Yeah, absolutely. So I spoke to Mary O'Brien. She's the executive director of Project 1100. Their name is an homage to the number of native bees in Utah. Um, Utah has the third highest number of native bees of any state in the nation. Is that number of species? Um, I believe so. I think oh. it is a rough estimate, to okay. be fair. Yeah, so... She, she told me about a permit, apiary permit in the Uinta Wasatch Cache National Forest. And I guess maybe um, we should explain what an apiary is. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So Sorry. an apiary is um, a, a group of beehives. So they can range, they can have hundreds of beehives and each beehive can have tens of thousands of bees. Yeah. Okay. So it's a lot of bees. <laughs> um, and specifically, O'Brien has been working to um, end the use of commercial apiaries in public, on public land, um, specifically in national forests. Yeah. So this apiary contract is set to expire at the end of December. It's been a 10 year long contract. Is that correct? I believe so. Okay. Yeah. And so she is just hoping that it won't get renewed without exactly. some kind of environmental analysis. Correct? Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think she hopes that it won't be permitted at all to be fair. And, but she believes that, um, the, the National Forest Service has an obligation to really evaluate the environmental impact of these apiaries on native bees. Right. So it's these these bees that are in the apiaries, they're non-native and they outcompete in some cases with the native bees. And that creates kind of an ecological problem. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. They're honeybees. Mm -hmm. um, so they have, you know, they do a lot of important things. They do pollinate. Um, plants and they provide food for humans, but they also outcompete these bees and they also transmit diseases that can really harm native bees. Anything else you wanted to mention about that? Yeah, I mean, I did speak to uh, the beekeeper himself, and you know, he had a different perspective. He he sees beekeepers as being stewards of the land, um, and he sees beekeeping as having you know a much less significant environment environmental impact than say grazing um, so that's just another perspective on the issue and then last but not least phil lyman is running for governor and to replace him lynn jackson is running for district 
69. Indeed, yeah. Uh, Moab's representative Phil Lyman announced last week his uh, bid to become governor of Utah next year um, in his campaign announcement. He also announced, I think, that he'll be vacating his District 69 seat. Uh, and local uh, politician Lynn Jackson has announced that he'll be running to replace Lyman. All right. So Lynn Jackson, he's from Grand County. Are there any Moab-specific issues that he really wants to address as representative? You know, I think TRT reform is definitely one that hits close to home. And that's just a common topic of conversation around here, probably more so than in some other uh, counties within the district. Another thing he said he wants to work on is improving highways. You know, he said Highway 191 has some issues and he called Highway 6, you know, when you're going over Soldier Summit, like a death trap. Sophia Fisher and Gwen Dilworth from the Times Independent find more stories at MoabTimes.com. The Moab Police Department recently adopted the same software system as the Grand County Sheriff's Office. Allison Harford of the Moab Sun News tells Emily Arnson that they hope to use this new software to better understand how they should direct their time and resources. It's a software system called Spillman Flex, um, and that tracks computer-aided dispatch data. So if you remember a couple months ago, we took a look at the Sheriff's Office um, CAD data. And now the data used by the police department looks a lot similar to that. Um, So that'll allow the police department to really compare incidents with the sheriff's office. And also, Lex Bell said it's just much more reliable data than they've had before. And so it took a couple months to kind of clean it up and everything. Um, But starting in September, he has had data that he feels comfortable sharing. Cool. So this is data that they are self-reporting every time there's a case they'll just sort of like log what happened what goes into the the system yeah information so this is data where like anytime somebody calls the police it gets sorted into these different incident categories um and so the incidents that the police have they have 117 different categories of these incidents and these are anything from like 911 abandoned to um, traffic stops or alarms. Um, domestic violence is in here to like really any incident that the police department responds to when somebody picks up the phone and calls. Okay. Did they not have a system for logging this before? So they did have a system for logging it before, but it just wasn't super reliable and not super organized. Um, so this is really the first time that the police department has had data that they want to share with people. Mm -hmm. So did you get to take a look at the data so far? Yeah. So um, they only have data so far for September and October. And we took a a look at um, the October data through the 24th. That's just what they were able to give me when I made the um, request. So in September, they responded to a little bit over 1,000 calls. And in those first couple weeks of October, they responded to around 800. Um, And so really the biggest trends are the police are by and large responding to traffic stops and traffic accidents. Um, Those make up like a little bit over half the call volume. And then also they are getting calls about like foot patrol a lot. So just like officers out on patrol who happen across something and then need um, like assistance or are just doing something while they're out on foot patrol. 
And then there are like noise complaints or suspicious person disturbances. Um, Animal issues are pretty big. Like they had around 30 calls in September for what the CAD data categorized as animal problem. Okay. Um, So you also took a look at the Grand County Sheriff's Office data over the summer, right? You did that big story. Yeah. And how does this data... I know it's just been a couple months, but how does Mm -hmm. the data from the police department compare to the sheriff's department? Yeah, so it looks really similar. Um, And so I asked Lex Bell about this, like, how do you, you know, where is the line drawn between the police department and the county sheriff? And he said that they have this, like, working relationship. And in a perfect world, anything that happens in city limits would be handled by the city police, and anything outside of that would be handled by the county sheriff. But what happens more often are these agency assists. So like one agency will immediately respond to a call and then the other will come after to help. Um, The biggest distinction in what they're responding to is that the sheriff's department is more often handling calls on Mm I-70. So like they're doing a lot more um, responding to like narcotics interdiction. Um, And then the, police department is doing a lot more like inner city traffic stops and like speeding um, tickets. Um, They also, so the data that I looked at was what Spillman Flex, that data system um, spits out as like a chief's report. So Lex Bell and I took a look at that and he also had highlighted a couple different things. So like the way that the police department is categorizing these incidents is in higher frequency, uncommon, um, traffic enforcement, domestic violence related, and also incidents possibly related to the Moab's unhoused or transient population. Sorry, those are designations that they can label each call as those are the categories? or Yeah, so those are kind of what Lex Bell goes through and highlights himself. So he has like these five different kind of categories that he'll put the calls into so like higher higher frequency incidents he marked with like traffic accidents and traffic stops um animal problems though he he marked those as higher frequency incidents uncommon incidents were like in october we had an aircraft crash um and then he also marked a couple incidents as these possibly related to the unhoused or transient population um And he marked those like illegal campers, um, intoxicated persons, loitering. He marked all of those as possibly related to the unhoused population. Mm. And what does he hope to do with this data moving forward? Yeah, so he's really hoping to use it to make department decisions. So like identifying what incident types officers should be training more on or where the department should focus its efforts And we talked a lot about these things that he marked as possibly related to the transient population. And he said, like, especially as we're going into winter, he's trying really hard to rely on community partners like Moab Solutions and the Moab Valley Multicultural Center to assist people in finding housing options, especially as the weather's getting colder. Um, And he said, like, with as many incidents as he's seen, he really wants to concentrate on that and like, how do we help people? And so we talked about that a lot because I thought it was interesting that he would kind of pull those things out and highlight them. And he said one of his goals as chief is to bring a social worker on staff because the department has victim advocates who 
are really great to work with, but they are fully on the police side. And so they can't really bridge the gap of connecting people to help. They can only kind of be there when a person is talking to the police. Yeah. Was Lex surprised by anything that he found in the in the data? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think the number of um, traffic incidents that they're responding to is kind of staggering. So in September, they responded to 509 of these traffic stops or accidents or vehicle issues. And then the next highest incident category was this foot patrol category, which only had 55. Mm. Um, and so, so in yeah. the traffic category, that's crashes and if someone's speeding. Yeah. So okay. that's those how, are really different, though. Yes, definitely. Yeah. And that's how like um, we went through and kind of grouped things together. And so traffic stops by themselves were a big category. So traffic stop was 450 calls. Um, but yeah, that just kind of shows him that that's where the police department is spending the most of its time. So like with these, some of our officers on staff are pretty new. Um, the police department is fully staffed, but a lot of people have less than a year of experience. Um, in Moab or in general? In Moab. Okay. So he said like, if he's looking at where people need to be trained and what they need to be trained on, obviously responding to traffic issues is going to be a really major thing. In Got it. Okay. All right, cool. Well, I'm excited to see what else you find if you're going to keep digging around in there. Yeah, um, definitely. Okay. Also, USU Moab has had a record enrollment this year. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. Um, yeah. So this fall semester, USU Mo USU's Moab campus saw a nearly 16% um, enrollment increase, which is a record number. And so the campus just finished construction on its new building um, like two years ago, and it serves mainly non-traditional college students. So um, the people who I talked to for this story said that most of its 80% of the students who attend USU Moab are these non-traditional, like outside of the you know, 18 to 22 age range um, right out of high school. Most students are outside of that and the median age is 33. Okay. Another thing that you were saying earlier is that high school students can get college credit at USU Moab. This isn't really, or well, is this related to the enrollment? I mean, yeah, I think yeah, that's cool. this saw an, that. yeah, yeah, this saw an increase too. So USU Moab's concurrent enrollment also grew this semester, seeing a 16.3 enrollment increase. So this is a really cool program where high school students can take USU classes for $5 a credit. And typically college classes are three credits. And so they can take any course for $15. Um, and high school students can earn their general education certificate through USU Moab, meaning that they can transfer all of those credits taken at USU to any Utah public institution. So if they start in high school as a junior, they can really like knock out kind of these 101 type courses that you would take at college and be able to save a ton of money if they go somewhere else for college. Allison Harford, reporter with the Moab Sun News. Find more stories at moabsunnews.com. That's it for the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. You can find the pieces that were mentioned today in the show notes on our website, kzmu.org, or wherever you listen to the KZMU News podcast. As always, thanks for tuning in and supporting KZMU, community-powered radio.